Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. Hello. It's part two of season eight. We're back after our break. We took an unintentional break to allow some books to arrive and us to read them. Yeah. And yeah, it just logistically worked out well. And we thought we were also taking a break so that we could enjoy time together in real life. But Caitlin, do you want to tell everyone what happened? (sighs) So Michelle was flying into Sydney on Saturday week ago or whenever. Um, and I tested positive for COVID on Friday. So I was in COVID isolation the whole time that Michelle and Jack were in Sydney, which means I didn't get to see them at all, which is so weird that you were here and I didn't see you. It's I know. It's like it it's like it wasn't real. Even though like we've all seen the photos, like you were in front of the opera house. That's not green screen. It's not Photoshop. You were here. But I was not there. I was stuck in my apartment. It's so weird and sad. And also, though, I have to say, thank God we weren't just visiting you because it would have been a disaster. Oh, I know. Absolutely. So we were very, very lucky to be able to stay with another set of friends who we'd already planned to see. And then we were like, can we just stay a few days earlier? And I had not seen my friend Sally for like a considerable period of time, not just a couple of hours for like five years since actually the weekend that I started talking to Jack on Tinder. Do you remember Caitlin? Cause you were there. Um, I was packing to go to Sydney and I saw the Adele concert with Sally. So that was the last oh, time. that. Yeah. Yeah, and she wasn't living in Sydney at the time. She was still in Canberra. So um, I remember that trip, her talking about how she wanted to move to Sydney. I also wanted to, but as it happens. Other things happened instead. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, and I was, like, talking to her about this boy I'd started talking to on Tinder. Um, So it was so nice to go back and see her and her partner. And, yeah, it was So, look, it was a really, really wonderful week. It would have been made all the more better by seeing you. But we went wedding dress shopping together when you visited. I see your beautiful face every video call that we do for the words. So I feel like I do have you in my life a lot, which is lovely. It was a lovely trip, though. We had a great time. We did lots of wedding shopping and I did lots of book shopping. A wonderful trip. I know. You still had a good time and that's good. I know. And at least my COVID diagnosis didn't ruin the trip and you weren't like suddenly on a plane being like, we can't go to where we were going to stay or something, you know? So it could have been worse, but it could have been better. (laughs) You weren't too sick either, which is No, I wasn't. I should say that. I thankfully wasn't very, very sick, but of course, you know, in isolation and testing and everything. So yeah. What a pain. Okay. Well, shall we do some recommendations? We shall. Before we, well, I will sort of semi-start and then I might throw to you. I just wanted to say on air, I actually took one of your recommendations and I read The Handover. Yay! That one 
would have been in an episode a couple of months ago. Yeah, I feel like it was like episode one of this season, maybe, I want to say. It, it may have been. And I did read it a little while ago, but like now is when it suits to tell you and the listeners that I actually listened. Michelle said I would love it. And I remember you said it sort of had um, similar vibes and like a nice hopeful feeling as Freckles by Cecilia Ahern and totally back that up. So like double recommendation. Um, and I could throw to you to do yours or I could do my other, my real recommendation. Do your real recommendation. Okay. So my real recommendation is also another favourite too. I'm sure we've recommended her books. We have definitely recommended her books before. And I read The Yearbook by Holly Bourne. Love it. Yes. I'm pretty sure that I recommended It Only Happens in the Movies. And pretending if maybe. If I didn't recommend it, we definitely discussed it. <laughs> yeah, we definitely did. I loved that book. Um, yes, and right. I haven't read, is it Pretending? But I think maybe you did recommend that one at one point I too. think I have too. And also How Do You Like Me Now? Those two are her adult books. But yeah. she's known as a, as a YA author. So yeah, she's... and so The Yearbook is her latest YA novel um and it obviously follows people on a yearbook committee um but also a wonderful bookish YA story because our main character um like goes to the library every day during lunch and everything and reads heaps and heaps of books and she always likes to write little notes in the margins and in pages and everything which at first you're like but a library book don't deface a library book (laughs) But it's very cute and she starts to notice other people, like someone else's um, notes in the margins and they sort of leave each other messages in a couple of books and then end up becoming um, really good friends and it's really sweet and it all sort of – and the yearbook thing, um, she's on the yearbook committee with a bunch of the popular girls in school who – she's had a completely opposite high school experience to them and so the story really follows that and how like how people look back on high school and how it's represented when you look back on it and everything so it's a wonderful book I read it in like a day and a half it was fantastic another wonderful book by Holly Bourne everyone has to go read Holly Bourne books Okay, so now I'm regretting saying that you should go first because that would be the perfect segue for us to say that our (laughs) guest today has also written a book about a yearbook um, and her book was called The Yearbook Committee. Um, So It would have been a good segue, but oh well. Um, But you can listen to our chat with Sarah Ayub after I give you my recommendation, which I also read ages ago. Um, We've been like... I feel like half well planned for this season in that we did a lot of interviews early on. I feel like I read a lot of things for recommendations, but I still haven't read the book that we're doing next week for book club. So like (laughs) I'm like half reading as we go, half have some recommendations up my sleeve. So this one I read a few months ago and it is called The Lamplighters by Emma Stonex. And I'll be honest, I was 100% influenced by, actually no, 80% influenced by the amazing hardback cover of this. I think it may have been a Waterstones special edition. Anyway, mm. I definitely remember seeing it in the Waterstones window in Chesterfield and being like, I really want that book. It's so pretty. 
um, it might not be a Waterstones cover, but it, this edition I think has like the sprayed edges and it's yeah. so pretty. Anyway, the reason I, the, the 20% influence came from an episode of a podcast, I think History Extra, which was talking about the actual sort of case thing that happened, weird thing that inspired the novel. So the novel is set in the 70s. Um, I think it's set in the 70s. Most of it's set in the 70s, basically when they had lighthouses in England that were uh, operated by people. Oh, So prior to like electronic operations and stuff, they had to keep the lighthouses going. And there was a case where one of these offshore lighthouses, like some of them are obviously connected to the mainland on like a peninsula and some of them, a very small handful, are like, in rocks in the middle of the ocean, like very Harry Potter style, like in the middle of the ocean, right? So you have to get like winched onto it and everything. Anyway, there is a real life case where some of the lighthouse keepers just disappeared and no one knows what happens to them. Oh. Uh, So that's sort of the jumping off point for this and it's two sort of narrative timelines. We get the wives uh, or the widows of these men. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's sort of in, I think, like the 90s where a journalist is wanting to write a story about what happened to the men and then it jumps back to, like, diaries of the men leading up to the time when they disappeared. Wow. Yeah, and then what actually happened is imagined. So while I was reading it, a friend who was also interested in it said, like, oh, do you actually find out what happens? And I was a bit worried it was going to be still a mystery but the author actually imagines a scenario, an explanation for what happened, which I really liked. Like, yeah, it is fictional, but I thought they did a really good job of explaining what may have happened. And it's a very, it's quite a literary novel. I wouldn't say it's like a thriller as such because it's quite literary. I really enjoyed the writing style. Um, it is very slow burn though, but it's quite beautiful. And also like just made me think a lot about isolation and the sort of people who would want to do that job where they're literally just on a rock in the middle of the sea, like weeks at a time. And it's just, it was really interesting. I think that you get into their minds really well. It was very interesting. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Oh, it sounds like a lovely book. Like... Yeah, like it's quite, quite lovely, lovely, even though probably quite sad and like what happens yeah. and everything. But yeah, I kind of like one of those books where you really like feel that atmosphere of it. You feel like you're yeah. there. You feel like you're on the lighthouse with the wind and the weather and everything. Like it's just all brought to life. So it was really beautiful, like that. Wow. Well, wonderful <laughs> recommendation. Thanks, Michelle. <laughs> and now for that same way. <laughs> Yeah, remember that yearbook thing I was talking about before? This is not even about her book that's on a yearbook committee. <laughs> I know, but it's a, it's somewhat of a link. Anyway, we hope you enjoy our chat with Dr. Sarah Ayub. Our guest today is a journalist, best-selling author and academic with a PhD in Migrant Australian YA Literature. Her work has been published in The Guardian, The Sydney Morning Herald and more. Plus, she's a Stella Schools Program Ambassador, 
has mentored the youth curators of the Sydney Writers Festival YA program and contributed to the anthology Arab Australian Other Stories on Race and Identity. Most recently, she's also been a judge for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. She's very busy. Um, She's also been elected to the board of the Australian Society of Authors last year. But today we are mainly going to be chatting about her latest novel for young adults, The Cult of Romance. Welcome to Better Words, Sarah Ayub. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. (laughs) Good. I'm so glad. We're so excited to chat about this book. And I just have to say your bio is stacked like there's a lot going on in there I don't know how you have time to write while you're doing all of those other things and raising three children yeah oh my god and like I don't know sleep cook be the taxi driver take them to their immunizations it never ends (laughs) wow I'm tired just hearing about that and Mm -hmm. and you've given up your evening to chat to us I'm honored thank you oh that's okay I'm planning on having a margarita after this so <laughs> oh next time you can do it while while yeah, we're doing it that's we don't mind. I sat Fine. down and I was like oh I'm looking forward to the I think I've got clinkers chocolate in the fridge oh. and I was like I'll have some of that after this but no your plan sounds better <laughs> I've already had a gin and tonic so I'm I oh, want to tea now set. but yeah <laughs> <laughs> um I kind of had it and then it was like whoops I forgot I'm doing this <laughs> Might make um, you um, bring a bit more zest. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how we go. I don't know if we need any more of that on this. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we probably bring too much to begin with. Um, I love it. Anyway, for those who haven't had the pleasure, we loved reading The Cult of Romance. Also, just quietly love the cover as well and love the cute little illustration details like the ice bobo and what I assume are Lebanese treats as well. Like very clever. Loved that. Um, Can you tell our lovely listeners a little bit about that for those who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet? Yes, sure. First, I'm going to give a shout out to the cover designer since you like the cover. Um, It's George Saad at HarperCollins Design Studio. I was very lucky um, that by chance my structural editor on the book and my cover designer were both um, Arab Australian or both Lebanese. So they really got the vibe of the story, the themes of the story, and George was really able to design something that fit in with the, um, I guess, identity of the book, if that makes sense. Um, So The Cult of Romance was inspired by my PhD research into longing and belonging for migrant girls or intersectional Australian girls. And it follows the story of Natalie, who was raised uh, here in Australia, in Western Sydney, by her grandmother and her dad. Her mother is out of the picture. And she kind of carries the shame of that, um, of her parents' failed marriage wherever she goes. As a result, she doesn't really believe in love and romance she's got a very strong feminist identity and it's interesting because it's a kind of youthful um feminist um outlook and the uh one of her cousins says to her i love how you um have done one gender studies subject at uni and suddenly you think you're simone de beauvoir which reminds (laughs) me a lot of me I yeah. yeah everyone has that phase when yeah, yeah. It's like you start reading about these things and you're just like yes why do we do put up with anything I don't know Sarah if you've ever listened to the podcast Shameless but they were talking in a recent episode about how they had changed in the past five years and one of the things that they both said was that they had maybe 
it's like they still have strong opinions about the things that matter, but they were saying, you know, there was a time there when if there was a discussion going on, they'd be in there with the opinions, but they maybe sit back a little bit more and and sort of observe. And I definitely found myself doing that. So yeah, yeah, she's, Natalie's definitely a very relatable character. Because she's young, you know, she's 19, she turns 20 in the book. And I think it just reflects the stage in life that we all go through. And I think there's something to be said for us as we age, particularly in this day and age, where it's refreshing because there are so many people out there giving their opinions and talking. It's refreshing to kind of sit back a little bit and not feel the need to insert yourself in every conversation. But Natalie definitely inserts herself in every conversation. And she has a best friend named Janet that she loves so much. And they have these plans, you know, they make these plans in year nine together that they're going to start a little side hustle, baking desserts and making mini dessert cups um, and travel the world when they finish school, kind of take like a gap year And then um, Janet, sorry, when they finish uni and then Janet goes to Lebanon and comes back engaged. So Natalie suddenly has to confront all these ideas that she has about love and marriage, but also play the part of the supportive best friend. Um, And she goes to Lebanon for the first time and she feels very confronted by how progressive the country has become, how different it looks to the Lebanon that her grandmother remembers when she migrated to Australia, you know, 50 years prior. And she talks about how her the, her grandmother's parenting experience was half a century old. And it's it, I wrote that book because I wanted to examine most Australian YA migrant narratives that I had grown up reading, that I had even, you know, participated in, with hate is such a strong word, centred on our protagonist, finding herself in the dominant white Australian context. But I wanted to explore what it would be like to have to explore your otherness within your ethnic motherland, your homeland, and find that you don't fit in there either. Yeah, that's what I loved about it. It's such an interesting book. And I think you're right, it's that, that exploration in Lebanon that kind of sets it apart from your other work and and other work that that is out there as well so we're going to come back to your PhD as well we're just going to like definitely want to hear more about (laughs) yeah we're definitely like put a pin in that and we're going to come back to that later (laughs) but we wanted to talk about Natalie first um and obviously like you said you know there is that sense of belonging or maybe not belonging in her case has your own experience sort of influence that and did you sort of have an experience like Natalie does going back to Lebanon? Yes so um, I went to Lebanon for the first time when I was nine and my family it was the first time we went since um, the end of the civil war so it ended in 1990 and we went in 1995 and I was young I was younger than 10 and I absolutely loved it we stayed there for five and a half months we had Christmas there it snowed um I got to go to school in my parents village um you know it was just an incredible I just remember it being a really joyful part of my life and then the next time I went I was 20 and I distinctly remember the experience being different because even before I went I remember my mother made me cry not on purpose but because she didn't want me to take my thongs with me like my flip-flops Um, And she's like, oh, you can't wear those. And it was like, you know, now that I'm older, I understand 
that there is, you know, even though they don't have as much, um, particularly in the village, they really put their best selves out there. And I don't know if you know any Lebanese people, but Lebanese people, particularly in Sydney, can be quite ostentatious. You know, they drive flashy cars, they wear flashy clothes. Um, and so it was so interesting for me that wearing my flip-flops was such an Australian thing. And I was born and raised in Australia, but then I had to be somebody else when I was there. And um, I went there and, you know, I, I had been othered in Australia as a teenager. Like from when I became aware of my otherness, I started to recognize that I was othered, that I wasn't really Australian. So when I went there, I thought, I thought okay, this is where I'm going to fit in. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not Australian, I'm Lebanese. So I went to Lebanon and I wasn't Lebanese there. I was Australian, everything from the way that I spoke. I remember like some cousin saying, you know, if we're going to go to a shop and we're going to bargain, don't open your mouth. Like just do not open your mouth. They'll know straight away. Like I had an accent, everything from the way that I dressed, um, just so many different things. You know, I remember calling the veranda something in like a really old um, Lebanese dialect. And my cousin's laughing at me like, who speaks like that anymore? Because they're raised speaking French um, because French is the one of the official languages. So there were so many little things that Natalie talks about that mirror my own experience. The fundamental storyline is different, but the little things that she has every day were inspired by my own experiences going back there at 20 and not fitting in. Yeah, wow. How did it feel going back to your 20-year-old self as well and exploring that for the book? You know, I think a lot of writers are nostalgic people by nature. Um, you know, we just exist <laughs> in sense. our own heads. We exist in our memories. It's, you know, where we go in order to be able to tap into our themes, whatever they are. So I always like going back. I mean, my youth was very cringe. Um, I wouldn't you know, like you'd love the skin, but you wouldn't, you know, the, the skin of your 20s, but you wouldn't go back to who you were as a 20-year-old or even as a 25-year-old sometimes when you've been able to transcend that. So it was nice, but I'm still happy to definitely be in the here and now. <laughs> what I really liked about Natalie's story and the flip of like, you know, not Australian enough, not Lebanese enough and all of that is the different family things as well is that she assumed that Lebanon would be so traditional and and even compared to some of her Australian friends her grandmother and father were, were quite traditional with her and she just some of those um, things were really quite shocking to her which I found so interesting because you do, you know, everyone has it where they start to learn about other people's families and how what the rules in the household were and what other people did and even in Australia people compare it to like what you're allowed to do in high school if you live in a bigger city versus in a smaller town and everything and so I found that really interesting to read and it was very funny how shocked Natalie was by a lot of these things. Yeah I mean that's what it was like even for my mother because um, when I turned 18 even before I turned 18 when I started you know, go, being invited to high school parties. I had an impossibly early curfew. I was the eldest child. So um, my parents still cared a lot 
um, <laughs> compared to how they were with my younger sister who was allowed to do whatever because I'd already done the worst thing by the time she was ready to date or whatever and married someone outside the culture. So, you know, my mother, I remember like years after that trip said to me, it made me feel guilty for all the times I said no or I gave you a really early curfew, um, just with things like going clubbing or whatever. Like I just, uh, to a white person or someone outside the culture, I'll be like, you're 18, you could do whatever you want. But it doesn't work like that. It never worked like that for me in those days anyway. Um, so she, I remember one night when my cousins were like, we're going out clubbing and I was like, oh, okay. Um, and I was excited because I was going somewhere different and I didn't go out that much in Australia. I was even, I wasn't even into clubbing that much. I much prefer to stay at home and read, but you also don't want the folk, like back then I didn't have JOMO, I had FOMO. So if my friends were going out, I would have loved to go out with them, but I remember they, the, in Lebanon, my cousins and friends were like, oh, we're going out clubbing, get ready. So it was like 8 o'clock and I'm, you know, fixing my eyeshadow and putting on my blush and blah, blah. And then it was 9 o'clock and they still hadn't showed up. 9.30, they still hadn't showed up. 10 o'clock. And they rock up at like 11.30 and we didn't get home till like 6 a.m. And my mum was out on the veranda freaking out, but she also wasn't worried because we were in a place that she deemed safer because it wasn't foreign to her like Australia was still foreign to her because you know she didn't you know know it in the same way that she knew Lebanon or she didn't know the people because of its diversity so it was very interesting but I remember she said to me that was the night that she realized how much Lebanon had changed because she would have never been allowed to, to stay out all night <laughs> yeah to even yeah. go out at night <laughs> You know, she hadn't evolved because she'd left that country in the early 80s and not gone back. Which is exactly what you explore in the book as well, yeah. which, yeah, is, is amazing. Yeah. It's so funny, isn't it, that stuff? And, like, I think, you know, all parents do this everywhere. And I think these days as well with social media, you're aware of what other people are doing, whereas in those days um, I didn't really have anyone to, apart from, like, my friends in school, I didn't really have anyone to compare myself to. That's a good point too. Everyone yeah. is a bit more in each other's business now, I think. Yeah, whereas Natalie, you can see her friends living, you know, she ha she is aware that how she's living or how she's being raised doesn't make sense. And her father's really distanced her, you know, he's not, he has not pulled his socks up. He's just delegated his parenting to his mother so that he doesn't have to be accountable for anything. And that's something that I probably would have liked to explore a little bit more, but the book was already too long. So Yeah, there's a, there is a lot packed in there. And just a fun question to, you know, move us on to this next part. Has anyone assumed you hate weddings after reading this? Oh, no, so far, no. I mean, it's only been out a few days. So, um, so far, no. I actually love Lebanese weddings. So they're the funnest weddings. Um, I know I'm a bit biased, but... If no, I loved reading one. about them. I didn't know a lot <laughs> yeah. about um, some of the traditions and everything, and they sound so fun. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I can't base every character on myself. I put a little bit of me in every single one. But, yeah, so no assumptions that I hate weddings, but uh, Natalie, I don't even know if she really hates weddings or if she just doesn't believe in in what they stand for, if that makes sense. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. I think probably, I mean, the main thing I think is is that she really doesn't expect to have to deal with this 
going to her best friend's wedding yeah. and helping plan the wedding um, yes. at her age, which I have to say, like writing a YA novel about your best friend's wedding is you wouldn't think that those go together. So how did that, like well, how did that happened. come about? The whole yeah. story was inspired by a, a girl I knew who got married at 21, like as in now in this like last year yeah. um and like I remember I, mean, I guess people school, still do get married quite young yeah, the story was actually inspired by someone I knew I mean girls were getting married at 20 and 21 when I was in high school but that was a very long time ago like 20 years ago almost but the fact that it's still happening today is what really triggered me into writing this story because there is a sentence that Matt says that is all Sarah and it's girls that um, with the promise and privilege that their mothers never had, just want to get married and go shopping with prams and purses that cost more than my car. Um, and that's what I that's what I see around me in Western Sydney. And they're not dumb girls. They're like girls who are smart, who are capable, who get into law. But there's um, what what I I needed to write the book in order to understand them better. And what I realized is for many of them, marriage offers security, not in the sense like financial security, they're quite capable of doing things on their own if they wanted to, but it's the path taken. It's a familiar path. It's a path that their mothers took, that their grandmothers took in a place where they're still considered foreign, where they still have to fight tooth and nail to be recognised in particular industries. It is a comfortable and familiar path. Natalie doesn't realise that, but Sarah needed to realise that and she did as she was right as I was writing the story yeah I, I actually really like that because I mean people can do whatever they want at whatever time of life they want but like yeah. I can't if one of my best friends said that they'd gotten engaged when we were 19 I think I probably would have been really shocked as well um and to be hey, fair I, I keep Caitlin... wrapping my head around the fact that Michelle is getting married at the end of the year and I'm like that's oh, ridiculous congratulations. thank you but yeah, yeah I was just gonna say Caitlin I still I feel like you're still like freaked I'm still freaked out by the fact that I'm getting married well it's just like, like it's weird older to, I still barely remember to say your fiance or Jack Michelle's fiance or anything and soon I'm gonna have to transition to husband that's so I know. weird it's so weird <laughs> I should also point out that I wasn't particularly old when I got married I was 24 and a half so it was a few months shy of my 25th birthday. So for a lot of people, that's still quite that's still young. Quite, yeah, that's, I'd say that's still like fairly, fairly young. Um, I but don't know. I don't know what something... people consider the standard Ooh. age anymore because it really yeah, varies to, so It's much. hard to tell because my parents were like second marriage and older parents. So it really skewed me. I don't know yeah. what an ordinary. And my parents were really young. We're really so young. Just like, <laughs> yeah. I, my parents are just under 50 and are empty okay. nesters oh wow so, yeah it's it's all over the place which is yeah. why it's like why do we consider there being a standard when everyone mm. is different but anyway but I also think it is interesting like obviously we're both from a regional area and it's not the same as the Lebanese community but I think you do see a lot of like girls that I went to school with and stuff a lot of them have already been married several years might have more than one child at this point, like girls who were younger than me, and that blows my mind. So I think there's a similarity there with in a regional area with the fam- I think what you're saying about the familiarity, like that mm. makes a lot of sense that rather than 
say, for example, doing something which is a bit scarier, which is like moving away to a big city, doing something else. It's 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 sort of simpler and easier and less scary to settle down. That's not to say anything against you know people yeah. who choose to do that. Yeah, and in lots of cases, it's just doing some of those different you know different aspects and different moments in life and everything in a slightly different order than other people around you might be doing you know yeah even you know Caitlin and I have talked a lot about this in the lead up to my wedding of like why are certain things the way they are in weddings and stuff like that so I think there's just a lot about weddings and marriage in whatever culture you're in it's just a lot of stuff around them it brings up a lot doesn't it and and in some ways, I, I think it would be so much easier if I just did it unquestioningly. But there's this mm. like feminist part of me like Natalie that's like, but why is that a thing? Yeah. And she does. She calls herself a like walking contradiction or something. Um, that's something from me because, you know, I find that I'm a contradiction with everything that I believe in and say. But, you know, there are so many patriarchal traditions in her culture but they're still important to her and they're still important to me you know so it's just really interesting to be able to share some of those with people who might read the book and know a Lebanese girl that got married really young and say you know like okay I finally understand you know it's it's a way for us to keep part of who we are alive in our new country you know, or in in the diaspora or in a foreign place. Bringing it right down to like the core of it still, a lot of YA novels are about, particularly like these older sort of YA novels are about that sort of transition time. And often it's like in the lead up to high school graduation or in the first year of uni or something. But this changing friendship thing is something that everyone goes through in different forms at this age as well. And the fact that it's it could be you're moving away, you're doing different careers, you're seeing each other less because you're not at school every day. But one of them, someone getting married is just one example of how all of these things can change at this yeah. age. So, And even like I don't think that's explored enough. Like I have felt genuine like fear and like, oh, my God, my friend's not going to want to be friends with me anymore when I found out they're pregnant. Like I'm simultaneously mm. like so excited for them but also a little bit scared that like our friendship's going to change and I don't think that we explore that enough in any case generally in stories yeah just generally Mm. and also I do think like with lots of romance books and stuff it's all about like that meet cute moment Mm. that sort of thing but you know we're having this discussion saying we know people who got married young and I'm trying to rack my brains and think of another book or another thing that explores all the dimensions around that like you have in this book for a younger audience so I just think it's great I think it's also important even if your friends don't get married young even if they get married at an age that's perfectly acceptable in society 27 for example if you don't like their partner (laughs) are you 27 yeah I love it (laughs) I was gonna say before before I even found that out that I think 27 is a good age I feel like that's the age that I would tell my daughter like don't get married before 27 um but yeah so like if you don't like the person that they're marrying if you don't get along with them that's the bigger test it's not really the age and I think that's something that Natalie has to get her head around it's like she doesn't have to like Michael she doesn't have to love Michael in the same way that or in a similar way that Janet loves Michael she just has to keep loving Janet and supporting Janet and that's probably the test for us it's 
not that we have to necessarily support their choices or agree with their choices. That's probably a better word. We don't have to agree with their choices, but we still have to love them and turn up for them if we want to, I mean. Yeah, exactly, if you want to keep a friend. When I finished it, that's kind of how I envisioned their future to look like, that he doesn't have to be present in Natalie's life. Not that she hates him. She doesn't hate him, but, you know, there's but something about him. he's not about her friend, him. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, with all of this, Sarah, did you ever consider writing The Cult of Romance as an, like, as an adult fiction? I remember when I wrote it and my publisher was like, we should Is change. this adult fiction? Or... Yeah, well, I think she said we should change the way that it's packaged, like the size so that it can sit on an adult fiction Um, I love that I did wonder if like the proof that we had was the size it's going to be so yeah it is and that is a weird thing isn't it that people probably don't realize if they're I don't know a bit more into into publishing or notice that with YA Mm. versus adult but yes the cult of romance is a trade paperback which is the normally the size like that bit bigger format of that adult fiction normally is whereas most YA and kids fiction is published as a smaller b format first Yes, so it doesn't match my other books. Um, oh, well, that's annoying. <laughs> you know, in the shelves. But I think they're releasing them in that size soon. So I remember Tran, my publisher, saying, yeah, we're going to release it in this size. Um, but I think the Australian new adult market is growing. I feel like in the last couple of years there have been more and more releases with older in this like in betweens yeah yeah um I loved I think Georgina Young her name is um I loved her book Lona I don't know if you guys have read it yeah we loved um, it yeah it's it's great and Jodie McAllister has a book out it just came out I think that's kind of a new adult book as well I haven't read it yet is that um, Libby Lawrence's pretending yeah, yeah we're interviewing her coming like, soon week. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you coming go look at me I'm like you're on it. I love it. Um, I want to read it, but I'm hoping that we'll have a growing market. Um, I think I was a bit scared. I'll be honest. I was a bit scared to pitch it. Um, I just went with the safe route. I, I've actually made choices in the last year. I've had to make some big choices. I had another YA owing on my contract and I actually said I can't do this. I don't think I can do the voice anymore. Um, I felt like Natalie's voice was a bit older and I don't feel that where I am at in my life at the moment, I can, I know that not everyone who reads YA is a teenager, but I don't think that I could put on the voice as well as I would like um, anymore. I've got three kids, basically middle-aged, but like I feel middle-aged, you know, I'm far removed from that world. I have no idea how they talk or what's cool. I don't have a TikTok. I want to be able to do my readers justice. And yeah, so it was a big thing. Um, that was That took a lot of courage to walk away from that. But it also shows how scared I was to leap into something different in that I went, I could have made Natalie two years older, could have pitched this as like a women's fiction novel but I went with the safe route and I mean it worked with my thesis so (laughs) yeah and like as we were saying before it still works as the story it's just a bit I think you know from like when you read the blurb and it's like you think 
like knowing that I was like, this is coming from our kids team, the cult of romance. And you flip and like you read the blurb and it's like <laughs> best friends getting married. And I just go, what? Like you just you think that's not something you, you read think, in YA. But you think marriage. Why not? You think like that's such a big adult thing. But yeah. again, as we've already discussed, we know people who got married at that age. Yeah. yeah so do you think you'll write adult fiction now? Yes. I actually started something recently. Um, I'm not very far in. I don't can't even no, tell that's right. you. You don't have to yet. tell us anything. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, but do you feel like it's a little bit more comfortable the the voice that you're you're trying to get into? Yes. Like this feels a little bit more like where you want to be and the story that you want to tell. Yeah, and it's interesting that I'm releasing kids' books because you can see the place that I'm in. I'm definitely not in that teen stage. Maybe when my daughter's a teenager, I'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, you'll have an inside you might have some yeah. new inspiration <laughs> exactly but for now um it's kids books I've got picture books um happening and then you know working on this adult thing but you know the other thing is like with the marriage storyline it's that I feel like um teenagers are having sex younger and younger these days too and that's a big thing like even if it's just casual it still requires a emotional maturity that marriage requires I know it's not the same sort of emotional maturity so on the one hand we see those relationships in YA marriage is different because it's a lifelong commitment but that's still a mature undertaking too yeah that is a really good point because I feel like I've read some YA recently and you think like oh this is like a lot's happening for this and this is YA and and I it's strange to think that sometimes because I don't know how much YA I actually read and obviously it would have been quite different, you know, 10 years ago when I was a teenager. Yeah. But but like if you think of like that show Sex Education, do you guys watch that? Yeah, yes. like I love keep, it. I love it too. But they keep getting themselves into these messes, you know, that they, yeah. they don't have the emotional maturity that they need necessarily need in order to or that's why they keep stumbling because they're not quite there. They're kind of living ahead of themselves if that makes sense that's a perfect example you're totally and I think that's what and I'm not saying that in a judgmental way at all I'm just saying it's very normal for us as teenagers to stumble to make mistakes to jump into things without thinking them through and I think that's what Natalie believes Janet is doing I mean that's what Sarah believes (laughs) (laughs) but you know Janet wants to you know forge ahead with this path that she's chosen and yeah. Natalie has to decide at a certain point that it's time for her to step back and let her friend, you know, wishing her friend all the best, but let her make her own decisions. Yeah, yeah. totally. That's exactly it. Yeah. I would like to quickly ask you about um, your first picture book, The Love That Grew, because yeah. it's such a sweet book for growing families. And, you know, people always ask, like, what book can we get when there's like a new sibling on the way and everything? So how did that come about? Okay, so um, The Love That Grew was inspired by my third baby, literally, like I just had my third baby and I was preoccupied with breastfeeding and schedule and this and that. You know, the first like six weeks after having a baby, you're like, yeah, you're just in this. And I'd had cesarean, so a cesarean birth, so I was like, literally on the couch couldn't drive anywhere I wasn't doing the daycare drop-off the school drop-off anything um so I didn't want my children my older two 
to feel like there was no more love for them because it transferred to the new baby. I wanted them to know that mum's love grows with every addition to her family. It doesn't go from one baby to the next or one child to the next. And so I just literally sat down at my computer when she was about three months old and I just wrote it and I left it. And then sometime after I pitched it to Tren and she was like, oh, you know, I love this. So um, I'd wanted to write picture books for some time ever since my daughter started school and she's now in year three. So it took a while for it to come to fruition. The first idea I had wasn't quite right. And I was lucky that the love that grew. And I said that at a, I was giving a school talk on Friday and I said, you know, sometimes it looks all rosy and successful because you're only seeing the things that happen, but behind the scenes, there are a lot of things that don't happen. There are a lot of times that I stumble or I flail or I fail even, and I'm sure it goes for so many other writers. But yes, so The Love That Grew was inspired by my third baby. Sorry, I went on this long-winded rant. No, that's right. No, I love that. Are your kids excited to be able to like read your book and and have that for their story time (laughs) yes um so they do care the the eldest cares probably more because she's in school than her brother and obviously the baby has no idea what's going on she's 18 months old but they had a mother's day function at their school on friday and the school asked me to go and do a reading and she was so excited to be able to introduce me as her mother you know? Yeah, and now my mother, the author Sarah Ayub, it was very. Oh, that's <laughs> um, so cute. Yeah, so she'll hopefully remember that for a long time. Yeah, and I hope they like my next ones because I wrote it. Um, I've got one coming out in December, also with Harper Collins, and I wrote that one because I needed a break from them, <laughs> um, or from doing things outside the house with them. Um, yeah. And it's about spending time together as a family at home taking it easy um so yeah we'll see i hope they get the message <laughs> that's I so good that. no that's great because uh, yeah i feel like lots of picture books are like you know and we go to the zoo or we go to the beach or we go to the yeah i don't know any parents that have time to go on a bear hunt go on a bear hunt <laughs> um so we always love talking about you know writing processes getting published all that sort of thing Um, but you know, I was doing research before this call, like I always do. And I saw in an interview where you were sort of saying you didn't really intend to get published and you didn't really set out to get published. So can you tell us how you came to write, um, hate is such a strong word. And I guess now looking back on it, a few books under your belt, how you feel about the whole thing? Yes. Okay. So, Um, Hate is such a strong word. I was a very bored teenager because I had strict parents. Um, (laughs) They're good for something. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't have a secret diary because I had a very, I had a super strict mum. So in hate is such a strong word. It's a super strict dad because I was so scared of my super strict mum. So I didn't make the mum super strict. Um, So super strict mum. Didn't really have a lot of privacy in my home. We're a big Lebanese family. It was like, you know a free-for-all everything was a free-for-all so I didn't have like an outlet to I guess it wasn't like today where you can go on Instagram and do a live or do a rant or a story or whatever Um, I remember one day I came home from school in year 12 and I was shitty about something and I just wrote like it was two pages a list of all the things I hated about my life and I just left it in my folder 
And then I was still a teenager, but I was in uni. I was complaining about the representation of a Lebanese character in something. And then my teacher just said, my lecturer said, if you don't like it, go write a book. And I didn't know what I was doing. It was actually a disaster. The first, I'd never set foot in a creative writing class. I don't know why I thought I could do it, but I literally wrote a book. It was, I set a 55,000 word limit, which is not very big for a YA novel, but I think there are about 70,000 words on average. But anyway, wrote 55,000 words, Sensor Religion, and surprisingly, she was into it. But, you know, it needed a lot of work. I wrote like a journalist. I did a lot of telling, not showing. And it took three drafts and then HarperCollins picked it up. And I was so excited by the prospect of becoming an author, even though I had no idea, like having a published book, not even becoming an author, just having a published book. That was the end game for me. It wasn't, I didn't see beyond that. And my agent was like, oh, they want to offer you a two book deal. Do you, do you have another book in you? And I was like, no. And she's like, of course you do. Shut up. Um, yeah, I was like, oh. you do. everyone does. Um, I had literally no idea what I was going to write about. And yeah, I just did. I wrote the yearbook committee and now I can't imagine doing anything else. But I'm going to be honest and say that journalism is still my favorite. I would still, if I had to choose between the two, I would choose being a features writer in a heartbeat. So why is it that you still think that features win just that little? Um, I think when I write fiction it's very solitary and I have to work backwards like I'm still I still see it as storytelling features writers are storytellers and fiction writers are obviously storytellers but fiction writers have to do the legwork without the talent if that makes sense so I'm referring to the talent (laughs) in the case studies um, that you interview and so it's very solitary and I do like it, but I feel like a lot of the time you're making something out of nothing. Um, whereas with features, you get to go out and you're writing about some phenomena happening in the world. I mean, I think that's just where my heart has always been. Like I've watched people leave this industry or friends that I've studied with go into some other elements of media and communications like the people I went to uni with and they probably make triple what I make and they have job security that I'll never have but this was my calling I don't care how many magazines closed down I still wanted to be a journalist and oh you know God, you're speaking just to me <laughs> it's, it's I think it's just where your heart is you know I'm so yeah I don't make heaps of money, but I'm so blessed to be able to do what I do. And uh, you said at the beginning that I was elected to the board of the ASA. I don't have time to sit on a board. Being a mum is demanding. Being a sessional academic, like working at a university is hard work and I don't even work there full time. But when I was asked to run, my thought process was I can't keep bitching about the state of things. This is my opportunity to do something about them. Yeah, I mean, I love being a features writer. I love I love writing books, but I love being a features writer because I get to interview people and, you know, it's so fun to be able to ask questions. And when you, when you write books, you're asking questions, but you're just asking them out loud to yourself in a room by yourself. I think it's just so good when you're in an interview and someone just, like, throws something and you're just like oh my god like it makes the whole story amazing moment yeah it's incredible like you have just described why I always think that I don't think I could write a book because I'm terrible at I couldn't come up with a plot but like give me all the stuff and I can make it 
narrative and amazing, but I need to have all the interviews and all that sort of stuff to craft. If I can offer you a tip, it would be that when you are writing a feature and you're coming up, there's a a thing, there's a moment that happens for you, you know, like it's like a cab's light going on when you get the idea for something that you want to write about, whether it's uh, women taking maternity leave or whether it's these are stories that I've written, unconsummated marriages. Like I don't know what possessed me to write about those, but I did one day and surprisingly I found people to talk about them. But that same thing that you get, that same moment where the light goes on for a feature idea is the same light that goes on when you have an idea for a book. It's just that you have to build a plot point and instead of going out and finding the people to interview, you have to actually create those people to interview in your head, if that makes sense. It does, it does. The last thing I really want to ask you about, Sarah, is your PhD because I'm constantly impressed by people who have PhD because it's so much work and I'm sure it took you a very long time and was very stressful. But the Cult of Romance did come out of your PhD, didn't you say? So yes. can you tell us a bit about that work and how that led to the novel? So I wrote the novel and then I wrote the accompanying exegesis around what I learned during my creative practice and my thesis was about belonging and being an intersectional migrant girl in Australian YA fiction. I wanted to look at what I mentioned earlier at the start about at the way that we often that our YA migrant stories, our multicultural YA narratives are all about coming to terms with our identity, finding ourselves in a dominant white context. I wanted to contribute something in what we would call an interventionist approach to writing. So when you write multicultural narratives, the research has shown, this is research from like you know, 20 or 30 years ago, that you can write in a integrationist approach or an interventionist approach. An integrationist approach um, is more about assimilating and um, changing yourself to fit into the dominant culture, whereas um, interventionist approaches, and I looked at my case studies were Does My Head Look Big in This by Dr. Randa Abdel-Fattah and Lorinda by Alice Poon. And I looked at the way that those stories were interventionist in nature. These people, these authors interrogated um, the status quo that made their cultures, their characters feel ostracized from the dominant culture. And so um, some interesting, there were lots of interesting things for me, you know, the counter narratives in Does My Head Look Big in This that the Western world looks at the hijab as something primitive, as something that ostracizes the wearer from the main community, but it fails to recognize that the women who choose to wear it, the girls who choose to wear it, are actively making a choice to separate themselves, to yeah. find um, sisterhood and community among their own people. Um, you know, it is an act of rebellion against certain expectations um in Lorinda I was really really fascinated I still think that that book is incredibly underrated like it's so smart I mean you mentioned before about the cult of romance in terms of the themes being older 
I think the way that Lorinda is written is so smart. Um, you know, I, I remember having to read it more than once to really truly appreciate what Alice did. And I really loved the way that she, it, it's a transculturalist approach rather than a multiculturalist approach. And transculturalism is all about framing your identity or coming to terms with your identity once you've been in contact with something foreign or other. And Bakhtin mm -hmm. says that we can only truly know ourselves when we know ourselves from the beyond. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but our main character, Lucy Lamb, gets a scholarship to this really prestigious private school called Lorinda. And there's a trio of girls called The Cabinet. They're the equivalent of, you know, Regina George and her <laughs> friends in Mean Girls. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for much of the story, Lucy Lamb does whatever she can to fit in. And, you know, she takes these, you know, she cops so much, um, these these microaggressions and these really mm. subtle attacks on who she is, uh, very insidious behaviour. And I really loved that in order to come to terms with who she was, it really reflected Bakhtin's assertion. She had to go to the beyond. She had to go and make contact with something foreign or other. She wasn't the foreign or other. They were. And she had yeah. to make contact with them and spend time with them in order to truly know herself. So my argument in my thesis is that we can only truly know ourselves when we stop um, predicating this concept of finding out who you are, coming to terms with your identity, particularly within an assimilationist context. It sounds much better when you read the thesis. I, I mean, a very good job. you have... You have tens of thousands of words to do that. Yeah, yeah. I think you did okay. a pretty good job. Yeah, you did an amazing job. Condensing it down for us. It sounds yeah. very impressive. That just must have been so interesting. Also, I can just imagine, like, having just gone through, like, done essays, I can just imagine how, like, mind-bending it would be to try and work all that stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, wow. It was an intense experience, but I actually loved it. It wasn't miserable. And I remember when I submitted my associate supervisor at Monash was like, you know, that wasn't as traumatic as it is for some people. I think because I really lived the experiences that I was writing about, it helped maybe. I don't know. It was like an own voices thesis. Wonderful. When did you finish oh, it? So I submitted it the day before I gave birth to baby number three. Oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. That's in, quite the deadline. Oh, my in God. In October 2020, wow. I had a shit 2020 because it was the, the year I was supposed to finish it and COVID hit and I found myself homeschooling the oldest one and being pregnant. And having the morning sickness, which is the worst. It's not just in the morning. It's all day. And my spouse was, uh, my husband was an essential worker. So he was not at home. So it was me with two kids, my thesis and my daughter's homeschooling and my naughty son. I hated that year. But anyway, yeah. I submitted in October 2021 and I found out that I passed in july because we had um july yeah. of 20 
sorry, I submitted in October 2020 and found out that I passed in July 2021. Um, and I only just graduated last month. Like I actually oh. had my ceremony last month. Wonderful. Well, so, so does that exciting. make you a doctor? I... It does. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, we should have had that in the, in the oh, bio. That's okay. Yes. That's Our guest, Sarah Dr. A. Sarah A. <laughs> amazing. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, like that just, that's such an sounds... achievement. I can't believe you have to wait that long to find out if you've passed. No. That's so well, long. Um, every uni is different. And I think because of where I studied, so I only applied to the one university. I was lucky that I got in. I wanted to study with Dr. Camilla Nelson, who is at the University of Notre Dame. I just loved the way that she, her research covers a lot of the areas that I'm interested in, uh, writing gender and media cultures. So she, you know, had the kind of job that I loved in that she worked in the media, but she was also a researcher and she also wrote um, yeah. and was, a, you know, a judge for literary prizes and things like that. So I really wanted to work with her. I had done some tutoring there. Um, I'd come from Sydney Uni where I'd done my master's in media practice there, but I liked the idea of being at a smaller uni and I was able to get a scholarship. So it was a good choice for me in the end um, to graduate from there. But with Notre Dame, probably the reason why it takes longer is because you have two local examiners, but also an international examiner. But it sounds like you, like in your research as well, are really adding to our understanding, our development of Australian young adult literature that really, and just Australian literature in general, that speaks to, to multiple different sort of experiences in Australia and, and just kind of getting away from that dominant white view that has for so long dominated our, our books and our culture and stuff like that. If you look at like my, my pieces for The Guardian, for example, like you'll notice that I spend a considerable amount of my column time writing about authors from migrant backgrounds, particularly Arab Australian backgrounds, because I'm just interested in the way that we can finally share multiple stories. You know, for a long time, it was one single story. If you were Arab Australian, if you were Lebanese Australian, if you were Muslim Australian, there was one story. And now at last we have the opportunity to really highlight you know, various experiences and narratives that we have. What would it have meant to you growing up to have more of these stories? Yeah, yeah to books, that the books that you're writing, like what would that have meant to you? I mean, I can't even fathom. It would have meant that I was able to grow up when I was supposed to grow up rather than walking throughout the world naive and afraid to take up space and feeling shame. I would have become so, and I say grow up as in be secure in who I am as yeah. a person, as a woman, as a Lebanese woman. I felt like even as a uni student in my first jobs that I had to constantly apologise for existing, that I constantly had to justify my Australianness. There was so much that I realise now with the benefit of hindsight that I was afraid of, that I constantly held back. Um I just think of how much I loved magazines when I was growing up. I used to buy like every Dolly and Girlfriend and, you know, then when I was a bit older, Cleo and Cosmo and Madison and all of those magazines and I never saw myself in those magazines that I really wanted to write for. And I say this when I go into schools that when I was a teenager, 
most people my age were dealing with normal teenage stuff. They're changing friendships, they're burgeoning sexuality, their first relationships, they're changing bodies. I just worried about how the outside world saw me. That took up everything because I grew up in a time where to be Lebanese was the worst thing that you could be, particularly in New South Wales. We were on the cover of the Daily Telegraph at least once a week. There's not so many words you could say to explain how harrowing it is to be a teenager seeing the Cronulla riots unfold on TV, hearing that in the only home you've ever known, people don't want you there. Like, it's so hard to explain that. I didn't know that then, but it just makes me realise like the chip on my shoulder was legitimate. You don't know what it is because when you were in it, like that's just what was happening. And then you look back and you think, oh my God, like. Yeah, just to know that you weren't the only one going through that as well. Yeah. Oh, that's. We obviously cannot understand that. So thank you for sharing that with us. We really appreciate it. And thank you for sharing your work in your amazing books. Um, So, yeah, we had like so many, so many extra questions. I don't even know. Um, I mean, we always like to write a lot of questions, but I think we we covered mostly everything. Just one little thing I would, I'm always curious to know because obviously the decision to, to study more, um, and to do a PhD is a, is a huge decision. It's a huge time commitment. How do you think it's made you a better writer in terms of your fiction and, and your journalism as well? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, uh, probably the biggest thing is, it's probably not the answer that you're looking for, is that it's made me appreciate books so much more because oh, I was well, nice. absent from them for so long, absent from the kinds of books I could read for pleasure for so long. I've spent four years in this academic bubble playing around with sentences that don't give you like the feels, you know, when you're reading, sorry about the weird dance. Um, (laughs) I'm glad no one can see the weird dance. (laughs) But you know, when you read like a meat cute and it it just gives you the feels. And it's just fun. And it's fun and it's escapist. I think no matter what you're reading, like I love the escapism. I never got that when I was in my thesis because, like... Of course not. <laughs> no, it was too much work to be done. It, yeah, too much work to be done. But the other thing is that they made me realise that my books mean something different to me now than when I first signed that contract 10 or so years ago. You know, it was like, ooh, a book, I'm going to be an author. Whereas now I understand that there is a monumental responsibility I mean, yes, there are people who are writing books just for fun and I still hope that my books are fun. This one is probably more fun than my other two because of the romance element. But, you know, I'm making a contribution to something and even if the book will be out of print in five years or ten years, it's still in this context making a contribution to a particular conversation and... They're not just words. They're not just something fun. They are things, I'm in a place now where I understand that in 20 years' time, someone could be writing their PhD thesis on, you know, the way that Australian YA has changed because I got to write about how Australian YA has changed. And I looked at the books that came out in the 70s and in the 80s and how different they are and how they said, you know, as you mentioned before, how they kind of espoused what we would call, what Stanley Fish calls a boutique multiculturalism that fetishizes 
uh, particular elements of cultural identity like clothing or food, whereas we are so much more than that. And so I got to appreciate those things in a way that I didn't. Uh, but also they've, it's made me a better writer in that I interrogate things in a, in a different way because I have to, I have to think critically. I can't just read for fun. I have to think critically about everything. Amazing. Ah, wow. Such a good answer. Okay. That was our final question. Okay. <laughs> um, so where can people find and follow you online? Okay. So I just deleted my Facebook page actually today, which was a huge <laughs> thing for me because I felt like, you know, I had it for a long time and I wasn't doing anything about it. So I feel really liberated. You can find me good. on Twitter. And on Instagram, I spend more time on Instagram than I do on Twitter. Twitter makes my head It's hurt. a nicer place. It yep. is a nicer yeah. place. It's so much more festive um, and positive. Um, but my handle for both is just by Sarah Ayub. By as in byline, B-Y, um, Sarah Ayub. That's yeah. going to have to be by Dr. Sarah Ayub <laughs> That's soon. That's what surely. people keep telling me, but I'm, I'm happy with it as it is. <laughs> wonderful awesome. thank you so much and we should just say again that caitlin's job at harper collins didn't influence our decision because we love your books and we were very excited to chat about this but the book is available now and yeah thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me have a good night thank you to enjoy your margarita <laughs> thank you so much for giving us so much of your time tonight bye thank you for listening to better words you can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review. Mm-hmm.